Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Ben Horton, a legal fellow with the group Free Speech for People, who explains the effort underway to block Republican North Carolina Representative Madison Cawthorn from running for re-election based on his suspected involvement in the January 6th insurrection. Chuck Collins, director of the program on inequality and the common good, who talks about a new report titled Taxing Extreme Wealth, What It Could Raise and What It Could Pay For. And Alex Koch of the Center for Media and Democracy, who discusses his recent article titled How the Koch Network Hijacked the War on COVID, which reveals the billionaire's role in fighting pandemic public health measures. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. On the sidelines of the Iran nuclear talks with European powers in Vienna, Iran and Sunni Persian Gulf states are engaged in diplomatic talks to entice Iran to sign a new nuclear agreement with the U.S. in exchange for massive trade and investment opportunities. The thaw and tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran come six years after the Arab Gulf states condemned President Obama's nuclear deal, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, from which the Trump administration unilaterally withdrew from in 2018. Iran is now seeking a guarantee that the U.S. won't again withdraw from a future nuclear agreement. According to the Christian Science Monitor, the Gulf states, led by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, are negotiating with a joint set of demands on Iran. These demands include de-escalation of Sunni-Shia tensions, ending Iran's supply of ballistic missiles to proxy militia groups, halting production of weapons-grade uranium, and curbing interference in the internal affairs of Arab states. In exchange, the Gulf states say they'll offer Tehran significant economic relief and hundreds of billions of dollars in long-term economic investment. There are several reasons behind the Gulf states' decision to take a new approach in talking with Iran. Among them are the perceived failure of Trump's maximum pressure policy toward Iran, the devastating war in Yemen, and concerns that ongoing tensions risk conflict threatening both Gulf states' national security and their business interests. Massive pro-democracy protests in Sudan have faced off against security forces for months, demonstrating widespread opposition to the nation's October 25th military coup. Protesters are demanding the reinstatement of civilian rule and removal of the coup leaders. Abdallah Hamdok, the civilian prime minister who was appointed by the military, later quit for lack of progress on the restoration of democracy. Since the October coup, 72 protesters have been killed and over 2,000 have been injured by security forces. The coup ended a civilian-military power-sharing agreement put in place after the army deposed former Sudanese president Omar al-Bashir in April 2019. Many observers now question the Biden administration's commitment to Sudan's transition to democracy. 
the U.S., along with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, appear to be prioritizing stability in Sudan over pressuring the military to return the country to civilian rule. In a joint statement in December, the U.S. joined the Saudis, the UAE, and Britain in praising Sudan's military without appealing for the release of political prisoners or lifting the state of emergency. New York State's Farm Laborers' Fair Labor Practices Act was signed into law in 2019, thanks in part to a slate of progressive state politicians elected the previous year. Before passage of the bill, New York's farm workers had no collective bargaining rights and were not eligible for workers' compensation or overtime pay. Even under the current law, farm workers lack parity with the overtime protections guaranteed to other workers in the state. While the bill provides overtime compensation to workers who work more than 60 hours a week, the state is still debating whether to reduce the threshold to 40 hours to receive overtime pay, the longtime standard for workers in other industries. According to the American Prospect, farm workers in 2020 made an average $14.62 an hour across the U.S., a rate roughly 60% of what comparable workers earn. Now, there's a major push by the New York Farm Laborers Wage Board to reduce the overtime standard to 40 hours a week, but the effort is facing stiff resistance from agricultural interests, especially dairy farms. While employers argue that changes in the state's overtime pay policy would force farms to cut workers' hours, the Economic Policy Institute asserts that such dire predictions have already been disproven in California, which established overtime pay equity rules for farm workers back in 2016. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. It's been more than one year since the Trump regime executed a multi-layered plot to overturn the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, culminating with the January 6th insurrectionist assault on the U.S. Capitol that resulted in five deaths. The House Select Committee has pursued their investigation into the failed coup attempt, mostly behind closed doors, but have thus far interviewed hundreds of witnesses and collected thousands of documents. In a blow to Trump's effort to keep his involvement in the January 6th violence secret, the U.S. Supreme Court denied the disgraced former president's request for an injunction to stop the release of hundreds of pages of White House records from the National Archive. New information has recently surfaced about Rudy Giuliani's effort in December 2020 to put forward illegitimate electors from seven states that Trump lost in an effort to stop the certification of Joe Biden's election victory. Since January 6th, there's been suspicion that several Republican members of Congress were complicit in planning and supporting the insurrection, but no proof of these allegations has yet come to light. Now a group of North Carolina voters has filed a legal challenge to their state's Republican representative Madison Cawthorn's 2022 candidacy claiming that he is constitutionally barred from public office under the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. 
Your reporter spoke with Ben Horton, a legal fellow with the group Free Speech for People and an advisor to those challenging Cawthorn's right to run for re-election. Here he describes the process to remove Cawthorn's name from the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that says no person who is engaged in insurrection or rebellion shall hold any public office. So in June of 2020, uh, we sent letters to every secretary of state in the country um, urging them to disqualify Trump if and when he runs for the presidency. If and when he runs, we will certainly launch a complaint against him. He is definitely ineligible under this provision, um, and we're definitely investigating other members of Congress. Um, it's not just members of Congress, anyone who has taken an oath of office and then engaged in the insurrection. So we're you know, also looking at some state-level officials. For our listeners, Ben, tell us who's brought this complaint or challenge against Representative Cawthorn, and what is the process like from here on in in terms of whether or not he'll appear on the ballot for North Carolinians to vote this November? So right now, there are, I I believe, 10 and 12 North Carolina voters from the district that Representative Cawthorn is scheduled to run in for 2022, who has raise this challenge we're representing along with some local North Carolina council. And also along with that, we have two former North Carolina Supreme Court justices, uh, one a former Republican, um, who are also helping us out with this challenge. And so the way that it works is you uh, file a complaint with the State Board of Elections alleging that you have reasonable suspicion that the candidate doesn't meet the constitutional qualifications for office. Uh, The State Board then appoints a panel And that that sort of acts like a trial court um, where we can depose Cawthorn. Um, We'll definitely be requesting subpoenas, developing a factual record. From there, there's sort of an appeal through the state. Right now, the complaint has been stayed because of the pending redistricting litigation in North Carolina. And so we're sort of um, just waiting to see how that'll play out. What is the evidence thus far that Representative Cawthorn had engaged in aiding or abetting the insurrectionists that attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And I would imagine that there's a discovery procedure in the court system where you can pressure Representative Cawthorn to answer essential questions that you might have regarding his complicity. The evidence we have right now for um, engaging in insurrection, and I think it's, it's helpful to point out that engaging in insurrection isn't limited to the people who actually stormed the Capitol any more than engaging in the Confederate rebellion was limited to the people who actually, you know, went out in the field of battle. So the evidence we have are that Madison Cawthorn spoke at the rally, Madison Cawthorn promoted the rally, Madison Cawthorn, according to reliable public reporting, was involved in planning the rally. We know that, you know, there were public plans to use the rally to stage an insurrection. So one reason we're really excited about the North Carolina process is there's actually a burden shifting provision whereby once we've established a reasonable suspicion uh, that Cawthorn is not eligible, which you know, we think we've gone above and beyond that, um, it's actually Cawthorn's burden to prove that he is eligible. Um, and so at this panel proceeding, we can depose Cawthorn. 
Um, we can request subpoenas, which we're definitely going to do. And so we're hopeful that that process will, uh, you know, shed more light on what happened. Um, and, and in the, you know, event that Cawthorn decides that he doesn't want to participate in the process, um, we're pretty confident that the statute means that that's a default judgment against him. Uh, he has the burden, and if he ignores it, he wouldn't have met it. In the end, then, who makes the decision whether or not Representative Cawthorn's name will appear on the ballot or not? Is it a group of election officials, a judge, or how would this be determined in the final analysis? I'll just add here that I've heard that Representative Cawthorn or any other legislator who's challenged in this way could possibly appeal any decision right up to the U.S. Supreme Court. He absolutely has a right of appeal from the, so the initial determination will be made by a panel of state election officials. He'll have an appeal to the state election board from there, and he has a right of appeal to the North Carolina Court of Appeals from there. Um, and from there, he has, uh, you know, a discretionary right of appeal to the United States Supreme Court. So absolutely could go all the way up. That was Ben Horton, a legal fellow with the group Free Speech for People. Learn more about the effort to prohibit members of Congress who aided the January 6th insurrection from running for office by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As the World Economic Forum, the annual gathering of the world's rich and powerful met virtually in mid-January, depriving the elite of their lavish in-person parties in Davos, Switzerland, a network of nonprofits released a report titled taxing extreme wealth. The report, published by the Fight Inequality Alliance, the Institute for Policy Studies, Oxfam, and Patriotic Millionaires, found that global wealth inequality is at least as extreme as during the robber baron era in the late 1800s. The five richest people in the world today, all white male U.S. citizens, have combined wealth of $882.7 billion. Analysis in the report projected the ways in which this enormous wealth could be fairly taxed, how much could be raised, and what it could pay for. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Chuck Collins, director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies, who contributed to the report. Here he describes the insane reality that the report documents, what might be done to reverse decades of extreme inequality, and how we can move toward greater equity. You know, we, we at the Institute for Policy Studies have been kind of tracking what we call the concentration of wealth and power for over, you know, 15 years and looking at these trends. You know, people talk about inequality, and I think it's both stagnant wages and declining kind of wealth and security for people in the bottom half or even 60% of society, and then this growing upsurge of wealth at the top. And... We primarily look at the U.S., although we, in this report, partnered with Oxfam International and the Fight Inequality Alliance and the Patriotic Millionaires to sort of look at the global trends of wealth concentration. You know, what would a wealth tax, both at the national level and applied across many countries, how much money could be raised? At the global level, there's about 2,700 billionaires with total wealth approaching $14 trillion dollars. Um, and we know that probably $5 trillion of that wealth has emerged during the pandemic, has increased in the last two years. 
So we know a lot about billionaires. What's new in our report is we actually looked at number of households with wealth over 50 million and over 5 million. And there we found there are 183,000 individuals with wealth over 50 million, and they have a combined wealth of 36 trillion. And there are almost 3.6 million people with over $5 million who have together $75 trillion. So it, it sort of confirms what we know, which is this huge updraft of wealth to the very rich, you call it really the top one-tenth of 1% globally, and that it's accelerated during the pandemic. Chuck Collins, you know, social services and rent relief and college debt relief are being starved in the federal budget and forget about providing paid family leave or free community college. So how could this huge inequity be addressed? There's a lot of wealth in the hands of a few, and our current tax system really doesn't touch it. We have an income tax, we have an inheritance tax, which is almost uh, irrelevant. It's so porous and, and so many uh, billionaires you know, evade it through loopholes and trusts. But we don't have an annual wealth tax that would sort of tap and, and, and tax these huge fortunes. Uh, and just to put it, put it in the US data points, um, here's just one that I found interesting. There's 63,500 individuals with $50 million or more with a combined $13 trillion. And we started to look at, well, let's, let's theoretically, let's apply an annual wealth tax to these great fortunes. Uh, not just the billionaires, but say, look at the 50 million and even in one scenario, looking at the 5 million and up. And if we applied a wealth tax, and, and very similar to what Senator Elizabeth Warren proposed, you know, a 2% tax on the lower end and a higher rate going up. Uh, our tax scenario, one of them is, and we again, we're talking about wealth, not income, but wealth over 5 million up to 50 million at a 2% rate. So at a rate that isn't really going to change anybody's true economic circumstances. And a 3% rate on wealth over 50 million up to a billion, and then a kicker rate, a 5% rate on wealth over a billion. If we applied that to the current level of concentrated wealth in the US, that would raise about $930 billion. So going to your point, Melinda, there is a lot of wealth out there. That kind of phony austerity story we don't have enough. We can't afford these things. You know, we've been debating a $2 trillion build back better legislation package. Well, half of it could be paid by the richest one-tenth of 1% if we applied a wealth tax. Again, putting it in the context of the pandemic, Oxfam using World Bank data showed that, you know, 99% of the world's incomes were lower in 2021 because of pandemic-related forces. Huge amounts of wealth has surged to the wealthy. And so it's time for both a national and global conversation about taxing these huge concentrations of wealth and investing it. And that's one of the things we talk about in the report. You take uh, at the global level, a global wealth tax uh, along the line of what I described would raise $2.5 trillion. Okay, what, is, what would that do? That would lift 2.3 billion people out of poverty. It would cover the cost of vaccinating the whole world you could create universal health care and social protection for all of the citizens of the world who live in low and, and kind of lower middle income countries. So like 3.6 billion people could have universal health care. We could expand health opportunity. That's on an annual tax. 
that's a big payload. And that's exactly what we're trying to raise up is imagine what this world would be like if we tax this wealth and invested in ways that lifted up the humanity. That was Chuck Collins, director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies. Find a link to the Taxing Extreme Wealth Report and related articles by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The coronavirus pandemic, now in yet another wave caused by the very transmissible Omicron variant, has killed nearly 870,000 Americans, with over 71 million cases of the disease in the U.S. since 2020. Recent statistics show that an average of 2,000 people are dying from the virus in the U.S. every day, roughly on par with the deaths seen with the Delta variant in late September 2021. Although science tells us, that unvaccinated Americans are approximately 100 times more likely to die from COVID-19 than those who've been vaccinated and boosted. The movement opposing mandatory vaccinations, mask wearing, and social distancing continues to grow within the Republican Party and among extremist right-wing groups. A rally opposing vaccine mandates at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. on January 23rd drew thousands of protesters many of whom believe the COVID pandemic is a hoax. Your reporter spoke with Alex Koch, an investigative reporter with the Center for Media and Democracy, who talks about the article he co-wrote with Walker Bragman titled How the Koch Network Hijacked the War on COVID. Here he describes how the right-wing network, linked to billionaire Charles Koch, has played a key role in fighting public health measures during the coronavirus pandemic. Since the beginning... They were questioning the government response, pressuring the government um, to, you know, essentially ignore that there is a deadly pandemic spreading quickly that no one really understood at that point uh, in, in favor of keeping all businesses open. Um, you know, some of these businesses are owned by uh, a lot of the donors, including Charles Koch, in, in the Koch network. Um, and so they were concerned uh, pretty obviously uh, that they may uh, sacrifice some profits uh, in exchange for public safety, and they decided that they uh, were not willing to do that. And so, as I said, at the very beginning in March of 2020, um, Koch-funded groups were already putting out press releases publicly opposed to lockdowns. Um, Charles Koch's premier political advocacy group called Americans for Prosperity um, put out a press release in Mar- on March 20th um, calling on the states to remain open and not be shut down. Um, at the time, you know, Walker and I both live in New York City, which was the world's epicenter of the pandemic. Um, you know, we had enormous um, death rates and, and te- positive testing rates. There were refrigerator trucks outside of hospitals uh, where dead bodies were stored because uh, the morgues and the hospitals uh, were too full to to store them. Um, it was a really gruesome scene. And at the same time, we had you know libertarian groups um, pushing for. Uh, people to stay in their jobs, uh, which clearly, you know, led to more infections and more deaths. Um, so as you kind of go forward uh, throughout uh, the early months, we had uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is, you know, a right-wing business lobbying group uh, that 
has members who are state legislators and also corporate members who write legislation together, and the, the members take it back to their legislatures. Um, they published a letter in April calling on President then President Trump to enable the states to reopen, and it was also signed by the letter was signed by other groups like the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is Coke funded, heavily Coke funded. There were also lockdown protests. Listeners may remember in Michigan, uh, there was a major, um, I think they call it a gridlock protest. Um, that protest was coordinated in part by Koch-funded groups, including the Convention of States Action, uh, which, which whose parent organization is funded by Koch. So, you know, we had a number of these groups initially um, that have, you know, survived uh, at least partially on the largesse of an oil billionaire who is a libertarian and opposes, you know, government intervention of any sort, uh, especially uh, in recent years regarding the pandemic. In terms of the total amount of money that's been contributed to this movement from the Koch network, have you been able to total it all up to really understand the weight those funds may have had on pushing this movement forward? Well, that's a difficult thing to calculate because, um, you know, few grants that we've been over the track, whether they're from the Koch Foundation or the Bradley Foundation, which is another uh, very far right conservative funder that has gotten involved in some public health issues. Um, most of their grants to these organizations are not particularly targeted, at least on paper, on the tax records to COVID-19 issues. So um, in a lot of a lot of ways, it's it's difficult to sum it all up. Um, but a lot of these organizations clearly spent money on staff time, on marketing, things like that, um, against COVID restrictions. Time and time again, over the last two years, they've been doing this. As we close here, Alex, I wanted to ask you, is there any idea that the Koch Network and their allies among right-wing funders could in any way be accountable for what they've done here? I know revealing this information in your article is certainly a, an important step in exposure and transparency. But what is your idea in terms of accountability when it comes to these folks who have pushed policies that undoubtedly made many people sick and killed an unknown number of people across the country? What they're doing is advocacy, and they're certainly spreading some misinformation, but they're not the ones who are actually making the policies. You know, it's the people who are doing the policies or, or, or fighting the policies or doing the wrong policies that are actually, you know, really the, the reason this stuff is happening. I mean, no one has to do what the lobbyists tell them to do. President Trump is responsible for hundreds of thousands of, of unnecessary deaths. I certainly think that he should be prosecuted for that. I seriously doubt that will happen. And frankly, you know, the Biden administration is, is going to be responsible for a lot more, too. They're not following the science, and even the CDC is not following the science in some ways. So, um, you know, that's part of the reason we did the articles, because it was very distressing to see what, you know, was originally seen as a very fringe idea kind of coming into the mainstream. That was Alex Koch, an investigative reporter with the Center for Media and Democracy. Find a link to the article he and Walker Bragman co-wrote titled, how the Koch Network hijacked the war on COVID by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, 
please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFA in Jamestown, New York, Verdant Square Radio in New Providence, New Jersey, WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.